Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Brendan Milstein to the show. Brendan Milstein is CEO and co-founder of Carbon Lighthouse, where he is responsible for corporate growth, engineering, and long-term planning. Under Brendan's leadership, Carbon Lighthouse became profitable and began reducing emissions within six months of operations. Brendan obtained an MBA from Stanford University's Graduate School of Business and an MS in Renewable Energy Engineering, also from Stanford. He holds a BA in Physics, cum laude, from Harvard University. Brendan, how are you doing today? I'm actually doing great. We built a swing set in the backyard at the end of week one quarantine for the kids, thinking we'd need it for a month or so, and oh, it's a real good idea, so my sanity is well intact. <laughs> <laughs> good for you. Now, Brendan, where are you located? Uh, we're just outside San Francisco in California. And how's the weather out there? Uh, foggy, because it's summer. <laughs> <laughs> very nice, very nice. Brendan, I like to open my show by asking my guest the following question. If you were asked to share something interesting about yourself, what would it be? I think what is interesting about, or one thing that is interesting about me is where my passion for renewable energy comes from. Because uh, my passion and love of stopping climate change actually comes from high school and specifically from a challenging high school experience and actually giving up on the idea that low-income education was was solvable at the time. Uh, so the the short version is my, my high school was a little chaotic. In four years, we had uh, six principals. We had 20 fires, one of which burnt down the B building. And my freshman class of 1,000 graduated about 650 kids. Uh, and the school had what was described as the achievement gap, which is of this kind of abysmal uh, graduation rate from freshman year, we sent seven kids to Harvard. And there were kids, it was a college town. So this was Berkeley, California back in the 90s. Uh, so before the first dot-com boom and uh, the East Bay wasn't even part of Silicon Valley yet. Uh, but it was sons and daughters of professors' kids and kids from parts of town who were really struggling. And I spent a lot of time in low-income tutoring programs and after-school programs where I couldn't move the needle. It just doesn't, it wasn't working. Um, but my senior year of high school, I took a nuclear engineering class at UC Berkeley and just fell in love. Here is this way to improve the lives of billions of people. And totally unlike education, the financial incentives were aligned. We could just hand people money to do the right thing for the planet. So figuring out how to hand people money to do the right thing for the planet has been my cause ever since. So off to Harvard to study physics. Uh, Raphael, my <coughs> excuse me, 
uh, Raphael, my co-founder at Carbon Lighthouse, uh, is my physics uh, lab partner from college, but we actually grew up five blocks apart and have been best friends since kindergarten. He abandoned me for private high school, but we've worked through that. Uh, and fast forward a decade and uh, Carbon Lighthouse now is doing the exact same thing we wanted to do at age 17, which was make it very profitable and very easy for organizations to reduce emissions. That is really interesting. Thank you for sharing that. And since you brought up Carbon Lighthouse, can you give an overview of Carbon Lighthouse? Yeah, I, I would love to. Uh, so Carbon Lighthouse, uh, we work primarily in commercial and industrial buildings. Uh, so office buildings, schools, universities, hotels, uh, light manufacturing, uh, Amazon-like warehouses, that type of thing. Uh, and what we do is we make it very profitable and very easy for landlords to reduce the emissions coming from their buildings. Uh, and the way we do this is pretty neat. Uh, so instead of replacing big equipment, uh, which is what traditional efficiency companies do, so they replace windows and boilers and chillers and that type of thing, uh, we actually install a network of sensors and controls. And then uh, we use all the data in real time through an AI platform we've built called Clues uh, to make all the existing equipment operate more efficiently. So we can cut 10 to 30% of the whole building energy consumption uh, without any major construction, without any out-of-pocket cost. Uh, and we actually take the financial risk on everything. So the way the business model works is we charge a fixed monthly fee, and the contract deliverable is a dollar amount of savings. And if savings are greater than expected, client keeps it. And if they're less than expected, we write a check to cover the difference. Thank you for sharing that. So you started Carbon Lighthouse in 2009, is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was still in grad school at the time. So that was, I'm going to say to a certain extent, way ahead of the curve. I did an MBA program in 2010 or 2008 through 10. And during that MBA program, we were given a book called Green Recovery, I think it was by Andrew Winston. And there was a lot of debate in class at that time, and we're talking 10 years ago, regarding the choices that you know, people that are investing in real estate and commercial real estate owners would have to make between, you know, perhaps doing the right thing from the climate perspective or making money. Now, over the last 10 years, some of the choices have changed, but can you shed some light onto your thoughts regarding that specifically? Yeah, absolutely. And there's, that timing is perfect because that's, that's about the time the market started catching up with what had been happening in labs and in research. And so the, the prices of clean energy and energy efficiency are extraordinarily different than they were in 2010. Um, and so what's so exciting now is that in 2010, there were real trade-offs. So you could do things to reduce emissions and lose money, or you could do things to make money and contribute to climate change, which obviously costs a lot of money in the long term. And that trade-off doesn't exist anymore. Uh, and so to, to quantify this a little bit, uh, we started Carbon Lighthouse primarily as an energy efficiency company uh, because that was already cheaper than coal uh, or natural gas on an unsubsidized basis. Uh, but we didn't look at solar because solar uh, solar was, in 2010, it was something like 6 to $8 per watt. 
uh, as opposed to now we're buying, you know, panels for 50 cents a watt. Um, and similarly, wind, I think, is, you know, has come down in cost 60% since then. Uh, in 2010, batteries were still catching on fire, whereas now you can buy a used electric car that does zero to 60 in four and a half seconds for 20 grand. <laughs> so mm-hmm. everything is totally different now. On our side, efficiency, you know, we've made it 10 to 20 times more cost effective than it was in 2010. And in 2010, it was already cheaper than fossil fuels without subsidy. So what we, and I was, <laughs> so I was doing an MBA at Stanford and an engineering degree there at the same time too. And looking at all the costs for renewable energy, there was such a stark trade-off that existed then and technological development has just completely eliminated that uh like to to quantify this just from the carbon lighthouse perspective our work has increased the value of our clients portfolios uh by roughly a quarter of a billion dollars at this point um and unfortunately we haven't made nearly a quarter of a billion dollars in revenue yet uh, which means landlords are making off with a huge amount of money while reducing their emissions by you know a huge percent anywhere from 10 to in some cases 50% for some of our clients now do you have any stories of landlords or business owners that you spoke to let's say 3 5 7 years ago who perhaps were not ready or the finances did not make sense then and now since they've come back to you and said hey Brandon you know Brendan we're ready to roll now yeah we we do Un- <laughs> unfortunately we have many stories like that um i'm trying to think of a a particularly fun one uh i think goldman sachs actually is a really good example here of a large institutional landlord uh where the people uh actually everyone we've engaged with at goldman they've all wanted to do the right thing for the planet they can't do that unless it makes their shareholders money and they have been on the forefront watching all of the cost changes and technological changes. Uh, and we were not able to work with Goldman in 2014, uh, whereas now we've worked with Goldman in very many buildings uh, and are continuing to roll out across more of the portfolio. Uh, from their perspective, they're doing amazing things for their tenants in reducing operating costs. Uh, as well as for their shareholders and boosting value of their buildings, uh, as well as reducing emissions very dramatically across the portfolio. Um, So I think they're a great example of a a commercial real estate investor that was institutional and just waiting for prices change enough so that they could beat their regular shareholder returns by doing environmental good. And as soon as that switched, they they started acting um, very aggressively and swiftly which has been amazing to see. You know, you mentioned you mentioned shareholders, and I know Larry Fink wrote a letter earlier this year about taking a broader view regarding ESG. Have you seen occasions where tenants are now asking for better, greener, more efficient buildings and landlords and landlords are changing their views or owners are changing their views driven by other stakeholders besides shareholders? Yeah, so tenants I think have actually been pushing this for longer than shareholders, uh, which is which is cool. So tenants, these are corporations, they have more stakeholders involved. And so from the tenant side, especially if we're looking at office buildings, 
But from the tenant side, you know, commercial office tenants, they have customers and those customers might be a huge range of people, many of whom will care greatly about the environment and many of whom certainly care about their kids having a livable planet. Um, So they have customers that they want to speak to well, uh, and they have employees too. And as the workforce has changed and the younger generation, which isn't even that young anymore, we're now talking about middle management. So this is everyone, you know, call it 45 and under is pretty likely to care about the planet quite a lot. Um, And so for their own employees, uh, they've cared about sustainability quite a lot to add some more numbers to things. The typical salary per square foot is anywhere from $500 to $5,000 per square foot of real estate, whereas utilities are typically 2 to $3 per square foot. And so for tenants to push for renewable energy, even back when that would increase their cost on utilities, it didn't matter if it made their employees and customers happy. Um, and so tenants have been pushing for a long time which is why we have so many lead buildings, why so many major corporations just have in their default checklist that the building has to be Energy Star lead before they'll even lease. I think what is newer is the shareholder push. And so Larry Fink's article is good. It was it was considered groundbreaking in so much of the investment community that it pains me because so much of what he said is so obvious and has been for years, but fine. Um, But I think what we're seeing that's so different actually isn't from tenants, which have been, you know, ahead of this curve for 15 years now. It's that uh, limited partners, so shareholders, uh, and especially European ones, but also the major U.S. pension funds now and starting to be more and more other major uh, U.S. funds are starting to be so much more uh, engaged with ESG in a way that's not just greenwashing. Um, So actually getting real data around what can be done to reduce emissions and environmental footprint of buildings, and also looking more at the data around occupancy rates in green buildings, uh, since they're higher, uh, and rental rates in green buildings, which are also higher. Um, And I think one of the things we have access to now that we didn't use to a decade ago, uh, because sensors and technology have become so cheap, is a far more robust data pool. And that data pool is enabling a more quantitative ESG uh, case to be made, uh, which shareholders are are getting very excited about. You know, since you mentioned data, earlier on you talked about network of sensors and controls and your Clues AI platform. Can you give examples of what kind of sensors and controls you, you put into buildings and then how your Clues AI platform works? Yeah, so I'll give you the... The basic evolution of data is when energy efficiency first started going in the 70s, back at the you know the first oil crisis the U.S. seems to remember, um, the data available in buildings was pretty much a you know once-a-month utility bill. And often it wasn't even that good. Uh, the utility would skip reading the meter sometimes, and so they'd, they'd estimate it for a month, and then the next month they'd true up. Um, so that, that means you get at most 12 data points per year. That's, that's pretty bad. Um, What is super common now is getting interval meter data. So this is data every 15 minutes at the whole building energy use. And this is far more useful than once a month data, but it's still not good enough to do really deep savings in buildings. Uh, The data Carbon Lighthouse gets goes a step further than this. Uh, So we deploy our own network of sensors in buildings 
uh, and also pull data out of the building's control system if one exists. Uh, and so rather than getting one data point every 15 minutes, uh, we're often getting, call it 500 data points every, every one minute. Uh, and it's on a much wider range of information. Uh, so we frequently know every valve position in the building, every fan speed, every motor speed, uh, water pressures, airflow pressures, airflow rates, water rates, refrigerant flow rates, uh, electrical flow through individual circuits and buildings. Uh, it's this crazy amount of data. And the same cost curve that happened with you know solar being uh, 10 times cheaper now than it was in 2010 has happened with sensors. And so in 2010, some of the sensors we used are 2,000 bucks, whereas now you can get them for 100 bucks. Um, so data acquisition has become much cheaper, and Amazon Web Services exists. Uh, so there's a whole cloud <laughs> which we can leverage, uh, since you know you couldn't even store the amount of data we're getting from buildings now back in 2010. Um, and what's happened with AI is totally different. So the, there's been this insane evolution of technology. Uh, and so Carbon Lighthouse is able to get all this data out of buildings very quickly. You know, it takes us half a day to a day to censor up a building for most buildings. Uh, and, you know, then we can cut 30% of the energy use of the building just by using the data and making the existing equipment operate more efficiently. And how does your Clues AI platform operate? Okay, so the way commercial buildings heat and cool uh, is let's say it's the middle of summer and you're you're in Texas. So let's pretend you're in an office building and you're trying to cool it. Uh, so the way this works is there's a fan somewhere in the ceiling and it blows air across a coil of cold water. And that's how you get cold air into the room. And that heats up the water. So the water gets pumped to a chiller, which cools down the water. Uh, but now the chiller heats up. So you cool the chiller by pumping water from the chiller to a cooling tower on the roof. And at the roof, you have a big fan, which blows all the hot air off into the sky. Um, so that's how you get heat out of the room you're in uh, and out of the building. So there's a bunch of components here. There's you know a fan in the room, there's a bunch of pumps, there's a chiller, and there's a cooling tower. And big office buildings are much more complex. Uh, they might have 150 fans and you know a dozen pumps or something. Uh, so the way Clues works is we get data from all of these individual systems. And then we use it to make a very slight tune-up or adjustment uh, across the equipment every five minutes. So it might make sense to turn a fan up, which has a little penalty, but that might let us turn that pump down a little bit, which has some cascading impact at the chiller, which lets us do this other thing at the cooling tower, and net it saves 28%. And then 10 minutes later, as people move around the building or the occupancy changes, uh, or the weather changes, the system makes a new automatic adjustment. So it's a lot like getting your car tuned up, but every five or 10 minutes and automatically. By the way, I'm asking super tactical questions because I'm super fascinated about it and very interested. So feel free to nerd out as much as you want. Oh, I'm as nerdy as they come. So that's a, that's a dangerous story you've just opened, my friend. Ex ex excellent. Ex and what does CLUES stand for? CLUES... It was originally an internal acronym, but our marketing team decided it was great. Uh, it stands for the Carbon Lighthouse Unified Engineering System. And the legacy there uh, is that the company was entirely bootstrapped from 2010 through 2014. Uh, so we never took any outside capital, uh, which meant we didn't have 
a large software team in those years. Uh, we didn't, in fact, have any software team in those years. Uh, it was all physicists and mechanical engineers uh, writing the models directly. And so we had some stuff in Excel. I think by the end of 2014, our average Excel workbook was 300 megabytes. And we needed to buy like effectively supercomputing desktop computers just to open them and run them because there was so much visual basic in there. Um, but we had all these different Excel workbooks, some various Python files, R files, you know, and each one did a different thing. And the Carbon Lighthouse Unified Engineering System uh, results from that legacy of back when, you know, by the end of 2014, all our technical predictions from 2011 were still coming true. Uh, and we knew we could sell to this market that no one else could sell to. Uh, so that's when we first took capital to start growing faster than we otherwise could. Uh, and so then we hired a real software team uh, whose whose job has been to integrate all of those tools and enable them to pass data seamlessly across them and, you know, aggregate all the data into, you know, a actual data lake so we can pull from it and use AI and blah, blah, blah. Uh, but that's the that's the legacy there was unifying all these individual tools written by physicists who could handle thermodynamics, but not real code. <laughs> well, that's, that's a great story. I want to go back to the census for a minute, just because I'm really interested. Do you actually hire a team to go install the sensors? Yeah, it's internal. So we have what's called the data acquisition engineering team. And so they go to buildings to sensor them up. And some are wired and some are wireless, correct? Uh, cor correct. Yeah, there's... If the building has a control system, we wire in a little gateway to pull all the data out of it and send it to our cloud. Uh, and then the rest of the sensors are all temporary at first. Now, you mentioned um, every five minutes, and I'm not sure if you're exploring this area or not, but how will 5G change the, your ability to collect the information? Okay, 5G is interesting for all sorts of geeky reasons. I think one thing that is in the future for Carbon Lighthouse is what's called model-based control. Um, and so the way our software works right now is we pull all the data from the building, um, and then we run all this machine learning, excellent wizardry on it, and we can geek out on Markov chain Monte Carlo analysis if you want. Um, but the what ultimately happens is the actual control system for the building can't handle any of that. And so all of our algorithms in the cloud, when they figure out how to optimize the building, that essentially gets distilled down into a massive series of if-then statements that get programmed into the building management system. Um, with the advent of 5G, that provides the ability to do more model-based control, which is where the native AI itself starts living in the building and in the individual field controllers. Um, which which allows for deeper optimization. So we're a ways from that still, um, both in terms of where buildings are and Carbon Lighthouse's capacity in that regard. Uh, but yeah, there's a there's an exciting future there for sure. Well, I look forward to hearing about it. I like the term excellent wizardry. So <laughs> let, me, let, let me ask a different question. If a REIT or a, you know, an investor is looking to build a building, can they use your data to help them build a more efficient building? Yes, so that's really interesting. We, are, we have enough data at this point that we're starting to be able to pull out trends that 
no one else has been able to identify before just because the data hasn't ever existed. And we have some pretty interesting trends. Uh, so one is it's standard practice for large buildings to uh, have a chilled water plant. And a chilled water plant, you have the central equipment, which itself is very efficient. But what we're actually seeing on average is that water source heat pump buildings, which have a ton of distributed equipment, uh, each individual piece of which is much less efficient than a central chiller, that the water source heat pump buildings actually tend to operate much more cost-effectively. And the reason for this is a lack of complexity. Chilled water plants are so complicated that operating them at the optimal way to actually harness all that efficiency just happens very rarely in the real world. Um, and so that's the type. So if you're building a new building, uh, you know this is a huge win because it's actually cheaper to do water source heat pumps. And they have other benefits as well. Um, in terms of like architectural design, simplicity, uh, you know, they take less space than a big chilled water plant, that type of thing. Um, so it's less upfront capital cost and it's less operating cost and it's less emissions. Um, and so that's one finding from our data, uh, which is, you know, emerging from we're in a hundred million square feet of real estate now. And so it's this huge amount of data. Um, and so we're starting to get these pretty neat and sometimes counterintuitive uh, insights out of our data now. So we don't have a formalized offering in this regard yet. Uh, but yeah, that's that's coming for sure. So staying with counterintuitive, can your sensors or do you have sensors that also track occupancy? Yep, that is one of the one of the inputs we use. So you can show data or trends regarding how people are actually using the building? Yeah, and I'll give you a fun one. Fun's maybe the wrong word. I'll give you an interesting one right now, uh, which is a lot of our our office buildings right now are anywhere from 20 to 30% occupied and their energy use has reduced only 20% as opposed to 80. Uh, mm. So the occupancy level in buildings is not nearly as strongly coupled to energy use as a lot of people think. That is really interesting. You'd think there'd be a stronger correlation between the two. Yeah, most people do. There's, there's a few things going on. The first is the actual, what's called the latent load. So how much heat people put out that needs to be cooled. Uh, that's very low. That's like 6% of the actual heat load in the building. Uh, but the second thing is landlords are operating their buildings to make sure they are meeting lease requirements uh, so that their tenants don't have a way of wiggling out of their leases. And a lot of those leases are very specific that you have to cool the space during regular business hours. Um, and so landlords' hands are a little bit tied in, they can't just turn off the equipment. Um, so there's there's a lot of lease details that are causing increased energy usage over what might otherwise be possible. And this is an area where Carbon Lighthouse's algorithms really shine. So most of what we're doing is taking advantage of trade-offs that can be made when equipment is partially loaded. And so when the equipment is so partially loaded as it is now, there's much greater energy savings to drive. Um, so we're actually going back to a ton of our existing clients and helping them get their energy use down much, much more while still meeting the lease requirements. You're right. That is really interesting. And you mentioned a lower occupancy rate. How has this current pandemic COVID situation affected business and what are you seeing in the market? Ooh. Uh, it's 
it's specific geographically and it's specific by building type. Um, so malls that are not grocery anchored are really in trouble. Groceries are doing better than they were before. And New York in March was completely different than, say, Austin in March. Um, and office buildings are completely different than malls. <laughs> so it's it's very specific where pain or not is being inflicted. Um, our clients who have multifamily buildings, uh, they're, they're collecting plenty of rent. Um, so, so far that hasn't, the impacts of coronavirus haven't flowed through to real estate investors and multifam very much. Um, office buildings have seen large reductions in valuation, but for the most part are quite solvent. Uh, and retail and hospitality uh, is getting hammered. Uh, retail was already in a rough spot. You know, Amazon has been just hurting retail more and more and more each year for the past decade. Um, so retail was already in a little bit of a rough spot. Uh, and then industrial buildings, so warehouses, uh, depending, can actually be doing much better. Um, so especially if they have uh, shipping clients or you know Amazon-type clients, uh, there can be a lot of benefit in industrial right now. You know, I just want to let you know I'm really enjoying this conversation. I feel like we could just go on forever. But I promise, last question regarding specifically Carbon Lighthouse. From a geographic perspective, which areas of the country have you seen leading the way regarding interest in energy efficiency? And where do you see the opportunities that lie for you? So far, our traction has been dominated by what are called the gateway cities. Um, so these are the uh, basically the largest cities in the U.S. that tend to be coastal. So San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York, Washington, D.C., Boston. Um, those are a bunch of the gateway cities. Um, Dallas uh, has a large real estate community. Um, so that's, that's likely coming very soon. Um, Chicago and Denver are also likely coming very soon. Uh, but we've had traction in North Carolina, in Florida, uh, and I mean like rural Florida, not just Miami, although Miami too. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a mix. I mean, basically, anywhere there are buildings, there are people who are interested in making money and reducing carbon emissions. Um, so that, that's been a good fit for Carbon Lighthouse. Uh, the other area I'll call out in particular is Hawaii. Um, so Hawaii imports, uh, Hawaii has very few natural resources when it comes to energy. Uh, and so they import most of their energy. And I forget the exact number, but it's on the order of 3 or 4% of their GDP leaves the island to import oil for use in electricity. Um, so it's a large economic loss for the state. And it's a very dirty way to, to power the, the grid. Uh, particularly in a place where tourism and the natural environment are so highly valued. Um, and so our Hawaii operations have actually uh, been booming since uh, we opened up shop there in 2015, um, which has been very exciting because it's it's an area we can keep so much of the money in the state rather than having it flee to other nations, uh, while also you know, there's just strong cultural alignment around the environmental uh, part of what we're doing there as well. Um, so that's been a huge success for us. Well, it sounds like you have a lot of opportunity for growth. 
yeah, there's no shortage of buildings, and there are $7 trillion per year spent on fossil fuels, and we want all of it. So plenty <laughs> of work ahead to stop climate change. Well, excellent. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit. You know, you kind of touched on early in the conversation regarding your interest in climate change, but crux of our conversation is the why behind what you do. But I want to change it a little bit by asking, how did you have the idea? And, you know, what drives you? What motivates you? What keeps you going? <laughs> so the idea from the technical perspective, we didn't have. We were forced into that through panic. Uh, so <laughs> the very first building we worked with, uh, we made a, on the order of one or 2,000 phone calls to win our first client. We called a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend and everyone in that possible network asking, do you own or manage commercial real estate and do you know someone who might? And so we exhausted everyone we had ever met or who uh, had been introduced to us. And from the very beginning, we thought it was really important to align the financials of the company and our customers with the environmental benefit. Namely, we wanted our contract deliverable to be energy savings. So that way, if we got a lot of energy savings, we'd make money and our customers would make money and the planet would be happy. And if we got no energy savings, we wouldn't make any money. So that went into our contract and we won this first building and we show up. And at the time, there's, there's two of us. It's Raphael and I. And the building's perfect. There's no low-hanging fruit. There's no medium-hanging fruit. The equipment is brand new. Like, there's no way to reduce energy use in this building. But it didn't, it, that didn't matter. Like, we couldn't go through that sales process again. We had to figure it out. And so at this point, we're two panicked, nerdy physicists. We have $10,000 to our name. So we got $2,000 worth of sensors and measured everything, just praying someone missed something in the data. And sure enough, they did. We could eke out 3% whole building energy savings, and it was a success. Uh, and then, you know, the next time we won a building, it was very slightly easier because we had at least one reference and one case study. Uh, but the same thing happened. You know, this client too was a client who was willing to take a risk on two guys with no track record and the world's worst website, clearly no idea what they were doing. Uh, and, you know, that type of person is the person who cares about the mission and isn't risk averse. They'd already worked with 10 other efficiency companies. So, of course, there was no low hanging fruit. But this time we had $20,000 to our name. So we got $4,000 of sensors. You can see where this is leading. Mm -hmm. um, and every time we won a building, it got slightly easier and we got more and more data. And with more and more data came more and more savings. And by 2014, we had this. 300 megabyte default Excel file to incorporate all the data. Uh, and it was time to hire real software developers and get everything into the cloud and grow much faster. Uh, but it all evolved naturally. Our, our original plan was not to use data the way we're using it. That stemmed out of panic back in 2011. Mm -hmm. And tell me about your why. Well, the why is the high school. And the thing that appealed to me so much from that nuclear engineering class is that the financials could be aligned. And that made the problem seem solvable, which is if we could hand people money to protect the planet, that it's like we could win that fight. <laughs> like that's just not, it turns out it's actually really hard to get people to do anything, even if it's in their financial interest, but it's doable. And that was the key differentiator. Like, uh, I'll change his name, but we'll say I had a kid in this 
program seniors in high school, uh, there's a program called Senior Freshman Bridge. And basically, seniors who were doing pretty well were paired with a freshman who was likely to fail out. And my freshman was Jonathan. And he didn't fail out while I was mentoring him, but he failed out the next year. And, you know, when he went home, his dad laughed at him if he did his homework. And he was barely literate as a freshman in high school. And he's actually pretty good at math. And from what I could tell, he was maybe dyslexic or just literally couldn't see very well and needed glasses. But like no one had taken him to an optometrist. I was a 17 year old. Like there was no way I could affect that change with his family. And, you know, here I and the rest of this high school is tasked with closing the achievement gap. And my parents have made me do my homework every single night since I was six. And I got glasses when I was 13. I could see things. Like that wasn't, there's no hope in that situation. But this nuclear engineering class, like, oh my God, we could pay people money to fix stuff? Let's go. So I'm going to push a little bit more high school kid. I can tell you when I was in high school, the planet climate didn't mean anything to me. Why did the planet and climate, why was that important to you? Oh, so this nuclear engineering class was really cool, which is, uh, it was split into three sections. So one was nuclear power, one was how to deal with waste, and the other was climate change. And the part of climate change that got me had nothing to do with the planet, actually. I don't particularly care about the planet. I care about the people in it. And it made it so personal. So in this class we learned that hurricane wind speeds are correlated with water surface temperatures. And so as the planet heats up, hurricanes get worse and floods get worse and droughts get worse and mosquito breeding seasons are temperature dependent. And so diseases like dengue and Zika and yellow fever get worse, malaria gets worse. And we have all of this data, not from climate change, but from El Nino and La Nina. So we have decades of data showing you know, malaria expanding when it's hot and decreasing when it's cold and that type of thing. And you know, here was a way to help the kids around me who I couldn't help through education. And so that was the part I cared about. Like, I don't care about polar bears. Like, I'm actually delighted there's no grizzly bears in California. That makes me happy. <laughs> <laughs> but like, you know, I could stop kids from getting malaria. And I could do it across both political parties. Like, it doesn't matter if you're Republican or Democrat, you still can get malaria if you get bitten by a mosquito. And so the ability to help everyone was what did it for me. And it, you know, I learned about all of these links to people at exactly the same time I was failing to help anyone around me. So it couldn't have been more perfectly timed. Brendan, thank you for the transparency regarding that. So what are some of the major lessons you'd say you've learned on your journey the last 11 years? Okay, the first is actually from my wife, which is get on an early schedule. So Amanda was one of those magical women in college who woke up at 6.30 a.m. every day and before you had woken up, had gone on a six-mile run and been studying for two hours. <laughs> uh, so I don't know how she did that in college, uh, but she has helped me get on an early schedule. And what I've discovered is that you just don't waste time in the morning. Like evening time slips away, but morning time doesn't. You know, I get like my, I wake up, I hop out of bed and open the blinds. I don't look at my phone. I work out, I start cranking on work. 
And by the time nine o'clock rolls around, I've done two hours of work already. And that's magical. Um, so that's been a huge benefit for me. And that is not my default state at all. Like in college, uh, my dorm had this like big bell tower and the bells went off at 2 p.m. every Sunday. And I was so angry because they woke me up. <laughs> <laughs> so being on this early schedule is that's that's like substantively changed my life in terms of how much time I have available for exercise and work. And I just, I don't miss TV that much. Like that's what had to give to enable this. Like what an easy trade. Um, so that's been amazing. Uh, and then the other thing that I think I'm surprised by is how beneficial seemingly random experiences in my life have been for business. And the example in my mind is jazz music. Um, so I was a professional jazz musician for a while, starting in high school. And, you know, you'd think the part of my background that has been so helpful has been Harvard physics and blah, 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 prestige stuff. But it's, man, was being a jazz musician helpful uh, for a whole lot of reasons. But the first is everything is in flux in jazz. You're making it up as you go as is every other musician you are playing with. And so you have to develop the ability to listen incredibly well and instantly and adapt instantly as everything changes around you. And that skill in business, oh man, is that useful. Like we were cruising along great in January and February. In January, no one had any idea there was going to be a massive you know, company-changing, world-changing pandemic. And so the comfort with adapting and changing very rapidly to changing circumstances has been great. Uh, and then the other thing, it was, it was helpful for sales, <laughs> which is I was hustling gigs starting at the age of 14 and convincing bars and restaurants to hire my, you know, ensemble of high school kids uh, to, to play in their restaurant for money. And that turned out to be great, training for, you know, sales to clients and being able to figure out what people want and what they're concerned about and addressing those concerns or realizing you can't address those concerns. So you should stop wasting their time and your own. Uh, and for hiring and recruitment, like same deal, I had to convince people to be in my band and I was always trying to get musicians who were way better than me. Um, so that was a great, great background. Very surprising to me. So what instrument did you play? Saxophone. And to echo your earlier sentiment, I'm a 4.30 a.m., 5 a.m. kind of guy, and I mm. feel like I'm, I'm cheating a little bit because, as you mentioned, by 9 o'clock, I've got four hours under my belt already. And I also feel like allowing myself or giving myself that, that time early in the morning to invest in myself allows me to be better throughout the day when, as you mentioned, the time does slip away quicker than you expected. And also regarding the TV, we haven't had cable TV in my house for about two or three years years now. We don't miss it at all. Everything's on demand, mostly for the children. But um, if you ask me about a popular show, I, I have no idea because that's, I don't invest any of my time in that. Yeah. And was this was this your default state or is this different than college for you? No, it, it, it's changed over time. I've been doing it for about 20 years now. Um, I decided that I wanted to significantly changed the way my life looked 20 years ago. I had a few mentors entered my life. And one of the things I started investing in was waking up earlier. At that time, it was 6 a.m. But after we had our first child, 
uh, my wife and I had a discussion and I said, look, I still want to do the things I want to do. And the only way I can do them is by turning the clock back because I wasn't willing to give up what I was doing. And so means going to bed a little bit earlier, nine, 10 o'clock, and then four thirty, five o'clock is when I wake up and start with meditation, reading, you know, getting some work done in the morning before anyone wakes up. So that way at seven, eight o'clock when the home does wake up, I've already got a couple of hours under my belt. Yep. Yeah, I'm not I'm not quite at your level yet, but give me another 10 years and I may catch up. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So, Brendan, you know, besides the $7 trillion, what's next? What does the future hold for Carbon Lighthouse? Well, I think there's some stepping stones before we get there. Uh, one of the things that's particularly exciting right now is national expansion. Uh, so we started to get network effects from our data which is a fancy way of saying we have so much information from so many buildings, we can predict things quite accurately now without going to site, uh, which means for a client's portfolio, we can actually give them a proposal on which we take financial risk uh, without ever stepping foot in any of their buildings. Uh, and so that has enabled us to do much better, faster national expansion. Um, so as we work with clients who have portfolios of buildings you know, in Denver, in Dallas, in Miami, in Oklahoma, all over the country, uh, we can expand much more more rapidly that way uh, and start having a much better environmental impact that way. Uh, so that's very exciting right now. Uh, there's a timely element of things, which is the advanced sensors and controls we install in buildings can help them reopen and operate more safely. Uh, so we can make sure people inside the buildings have safe air to breathe. So that is a nice way to use our technology to give back in another way right now. Um, so that's that's certainly timely, and I certainly hope it's not relevant two years from now. Uh, and you're asking about the future. Uh, but geographic expansion is exciting, and using our technology in more and more ways to get more and more energy savings in buildings is exciting. Uh, so we have a roadmap to more than double the amount of savings we're giving to clients, which you know will save everyone a ton more money and save the planet a ton more CO2 emissions. You know, I love that idea. I'm almost imagining the idea of walking into a commercial building and seeing something on the wall saying this is a carbon lighthouse certified building. Yeah, we need to up our plaque game. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So last question I have is if you could share some advice or words of wisdom with the audience, what would it be? I like the waking up early thing. That's definitely an area to push on. Uh, I think there's, there's two phrases I have heard from others which have been really helpful for me. Uh, so the first is don't compare your outtakes to everyone else's highlight reel. And I have applied that in my personal life as well as to Carbon Lighthouse, and I've found that very helpful, which is what you see from most other people is their highlights reel. It's not their outtakes and it's not their normal. Uh, but especially people who are pushing themselves to improve or strive, what certainly for me, what I so often look at are my outtakes, the areas I did poorly, uh, so I can figure out how to learn from them and improve them uh, or improve in that area. And so not comparing outtakes to others' highlights uh, has been helpful for sanity and confidence. Um, and then the other one, this is an echoing green bit of wisdom I heard from 2011, which has been my guiding philosophy since then, uh, is if people aren't inspired to help you, you aren't asking for enough. So rather than reducing the ask, actually asking for more help uh, is much more inspiring and makes it easier. 
That's beautiful. Thank you so much for that. Brendan, I really enjoyed speaking with you. Is there anything else you'd like to share before we go? Uh, the last thing I will highlight for all the listeners, especially those who own or manage commercial real estate, uh, but really for everyone, uh, is that things have changed. And there's 2020 is a hard year, uh, but there are, there are some areas of hope. And one of them has to do with climate change. And it is, there's no longer a trade-off between doing the right thing for the world and your kids uh, and doing the right thing for the economy. Like technology has changed the cost of things. And now it is substantially more profitable to reduce carbon emissions than it is to do nothing. And that's new and it's exciting. We've increased the value of our clients' portfolios by a quarter of a billion dollars while reducing the emissions of 11 and a half power plants. Like there's no trade-off there. It's just more money for everyone. And there's 49,988.5 power plants left to go to stop climate change. (laughs) But we are finally directionally correct. Um, So I would encourage everyone to rejoice in that fact and take action on it. Well, Brendan, I think that's a great place to leave off. And I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Raj. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech, green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.